Um, anyone uh, know what this road sign means? Who said that? Men at work. That is right. It's, when we were kids, we used to joke that this was the sign for a windy day because it looks like an, uh, like an umbrella that's gone the wrong way around. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we weren't that funny when we were kids. Not that funny now. Um, someone in Wiltshire... Uh, this is a real sign that was modified by a member of the public because they were so fed up of their local roadworks that they printed this off and stuck it over the, the real sign. Um, do you ever feel like that? We have a lot of roadworks in Rotherham, don't we? Um, I, I don't want to criticise uh, the guys who do that because we're very grateful, but I thought that was quite funny. Um, this 10 of Ephesians chapter 1 is where we've got to in our studies. And um, verse 10 is really not so much about men at work as it is God at work. This really is one of the most incredible verses in the Bible. Um, I've given you some sheets there that have got the verse at the top. We were thinking about verse 9 last week. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. It is a mind-blowing statement that God is at work in history to bring everything that there is in heaven and on earth together under the Lordship of Christ. And this is an idea that should make us sit up and take notice because it is so alien to the way we tend to think about the world one writer says this, our world seldom seems to be following any plan or premeditated strategy. In chaos it began and to chaos it seems always to be returning. Each week's headlines scream of tragedy upon catastrophe upon disaster. If there is any purpose to human existence, most of the world's population has concluded it is simply to survive. For Paul here, in Ephesians, the story of human history is one of unravelling. There is a kind of, uh, I did an engineering degree many years ago, I've forgotten most of what I know, but there's a thing I think called centrifugal force, where things spin really fast and bits fly off. And I think the world often feels like it is spinning out of control and bits are flying off in all directions but here in this verse, Paul speaks of the opposite thing happening, that God is somehow reversing that process and putting and fitting the broken parts back together again. I suggested last week that verse 10 is a very key verse in the book of Ephesians. And the reason for that is that this idea right here changes everything. God is designing to bring everything back together under the authority and lordship of Christ. That is mind-blowing. It is no exaggeration to say that this literally does change everything. What I'd like to do with you this afternoon is ask three very simple questions. Um, first of all, we'll just look at what this verse, or, or what this last clause in verse 10 means, um, just to open it up a little bit. Then we'll think about what it implies for us 
And then we'll close, hopefully, with some applications as to what, does it, what difference should it make to our lives. Now, today, in Rotherham, in 2014, on a cold, well, it's red hot in here, a cold winter's day when we're red hot in here. First of all, then, what does it mean? Let me just say a couple of brief things about what Paul is trying to convey here. I, I'm sure you'd agree with me that many people have very different views about the way that history unfolds. Some people, for example, believe in karma. You've heard of, uh, of that. People talk about bad karma and good karma. Hello? Come in. Oh, that's good. Well, not good. Nice. comment. Oh, very good. It's because it's warmer in here, you see. Must be cold out the back. Yeah, people have different ideas, so some people believe in karma. And in that sense, history is meant to be like an endless cycle of improvement. And the, the idea of karma and reincarnation. Here, I, I don't want to dwell too much on that. Here, Paul, the picture Paul's painting, in a way, is of the management of a house or family in our, our translation here is um, is okay but it when, when Paul says that the, the phrase to be put into effect uh, is the, the Greek word for that is the, is the Greek word economia we, we, we say economics don't we the word actually means stewardship management oversight and it was often used by Greeks in connection with the responsibilities of running a household I, I like this because we, we've got some experience of this uh, our home often can be a very busy place and um, we have calendars on the wall well we just decorated actually last week so the calendar hangs on the light switch at the moment but we've got a calendar on the wall and there's columns for dad, mum, and all the kids. Even the boys away at university, it's got some of their exams on there. So that we can see who's doing what on a given day. It's a lot to keep up with. I'm very blessed to have a wife who is very thoughtful. And she thinks about things, I'm embarrassed Nicky, she's here. She thinks about things and tries to work out what is best, what is efficient, and what will make us happy and healthy and, and just as an aside here there's a lot of negative talk in our culture about women who stay at home not having careers sometimes I think that women who build families and manage homes are actually like CEOs of companies with all the planning the people skills the purchasing the goal setting don't let anyone underestimate what is involved in managing a busy household. This is what Paul means here when he says to be put into effect. It just sounds like a verb. But really the idea behind this is the idea of God managing a household. Paul is painting a picture of history not being cyclical, but of history being like a household that God manages. God is a planner. He has purposes. He has an administration, an economy, a scheme, a plan that he's putting into effect. So Paul's point here, first of all, is that history is not random chaos. 
it is not close your eyes and hope for the best. God is at work putting things into effect. He's managing history. Paul also uses another very unusual word when he speaks about bringing all things together. It's one word in the Greek um, and there's something that a little bit mathematical about this word. Uh, I should be uh, flicking this on, do you know? What does it mean? God's management of history. There we go. Catch up on myself. Um, there's something a little bit mathematical about this word. For example, you know how sometimes if you think something's not quite right, we think something fishy's going on. We say that, don't we? And we might say, we look at things and we say, something doesn't add up here. Do you ever say that? Something doesn't add up. The word Paul uses here really has that connotation behind it. That God is at work in the world to make everything add up. And the total, in the end, will be Christ. This word only occurs in one other place in the Bible. If you make it, you don't need to look at it, but if you make it note, Romans 13 verse 8, where it talks about the whole law of God being summed up by love. In other words, where there is a lot of detail in God's commands and rules, from the Bible's perspective, all of them, if you add them all up, if you've got a calculator and added up all God's commands, the total at the bottom would say love. The whole thing is summed up by love. So here in Ephesians, in Ephesians, we might say that God is summing up history. He's, added, he's adding things together. And what Paul's telling us, that the dominant reality behind, behind every other reality is Christ. Christ is the glue in which all other realities stick together. He is the unifying theme. One writer says this conveys the idea that all things will be brought into meaningful relationship together under Christ. At present, there is fragmentation and frustration. Things do not add up. On that day, however, under Christ, everything will add up. That is, be summed up in Christ. So God's administration is that in Christ all brokenness will be healed. Things that have got separated will be put back together. All dislocation will be mended. Out of the apparent chaos of human history, God is bringing order and harmony. And the scope of it is breathtaking. Paul doesn't waste any words here. He says to bring all things in heaven and on earth by saying heavens and the earth, Paul is lifting his vision to encompass the whole universe. One writer says, there's no part or feature of the cosmos that is beyond the loving and renewing reach of the creator. So God is managing history and it will end up being summed up in the Lord Jesus. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this all imply? just want to spend a little longer on this. Uh, first of all, I'm sure you'd agree that 
given what we've said there about what Paul means here, first of all, that means that things must need fixing. It's a simple um, implication. The first thing that this all points to is that there is brokenness that needs to be fixed. I I don't want to rattle on about translations all day, but this this verse, um, this is the last time I'm going to mention the Greek. The Greek word that Paul uses for unifying things here, bringing things together, has a little prefix before it. And it's the three letters, A-N-A, Anna. And that little prefix, really, you would put that there if you wanted to say something again. So I think in English we would put the word, the, the little letters, re. So we would say, reapply. I've applied once, and now I'm reapplying. In this case, the idea is something being reunited. That little word, Anna, means that something that was united has become disunited and now it's being reunited. What's interesting is no translation, as far as I can tell, has the word again in the text, but it should be. This verse is not just saying that God is doing something that seemed like a good idea to him. It is meant to convey that God is repairing things. He is putting things back together to be harmonious like they once were before. I think that puts a different slant on things. Paul's alluding here to the fact that there was a time when there was unity. There was a time when things didn't fly out of control. Life worked. People lived in peace, togetherness, until something went wrong. And the story of the Bible, according to Paul here, this is really the pinnacle of his theology. The story of the Bible is that God is at work in the world to bring things back together again how they should be let me give you an illustration I see I, this might bomb but let's see whether this works imagine a great orchestra playing an amazing symphony you've got all kinds of instruments in this great orchestra and at the front there's a conductor with a little stick called a baton. He doesn't use it to beat people with. He sort of, he, he, he does clever things. I remember doing music at school, something like this. He, depending on the, the tempo, Sam's putting his head in his hands because I've no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, the conductor waves his stick. He looks like he's just having a good time, doesn't he? But the people in the orchestra know that he's directing them. And there's harmony. He conducts all the different individuals to play their part and it sounds amazing. And this is not an orchestra that only has one type of instrument. All the instruments are different but they all play their part working together and under the conductor they all blend into a glorious, harmonious whole. They don't lose their individual sounds but when they play together, they're somehow more than just individual. Now imagine the violins suddenly think, this conductor is a jerk, waving his fancy stick at the front, telling us what to do and what tune to play. I want to play my own tune. I want to be free of this arrogant man at the front with his so-called authority. 
This conductor is nothing more than a control freak. That's what he is. So all the violins get up and they go and sit in the corner and they decide to play their own tune. And then the tubers think, we've had enough of this compliance and subservience. We just don't feel like we're respected as individual tubers. And so they go off and they go off into another corner and they, whatever tubers do, feel like I want to pump, that's not a tuber, is it? It sounds like they pump. <laughs> that's a wind instrument, isn't it? They blow, but it makes a very deep noise that sounds like they're pumping some bellows. Anyway, the violins are over here, the tubers are over here. Before you know it, where a moment ago you had beautiful harmony under the leadership of a competent conductor, what you now have is a dysfunctional and chaotic mess. Every part, instead of contributing to the whole, is pulling in a different direction and it sounds awful. Let me ask you a question. When you look out into this world, what do you see? Do you see harmonious unity? Or do you see dissonance and dislocation? I want to suggest that in the end every dislocation that we see is a symptom or an outworking of a great rupture in our relationship with God. He is the great conductor but we don't want to play to his tune or to his tempo. And so we go off and try other things and in the end nothing seems to work like it should the early chapters of Genesis are so important the devil has a discussion with Eve and, and Adam and basically tries to persuade them that the conductor is a control freak that's really what's going on in Genesis chapter 3 the devil insinuates that the rule of God in their lives is somehow unfair and was limiting their true potential and he suggests to them, you'll only be truly free when you strike out and become independent. Leave God behind. Make your own rules. Play your own tune. You'll then be in control of your own destiny, truly fulfilled and truly happy. In actual fact, what happened was dislocation on every conceivable level. They were dislocated from God they were dislocated from one another they felt the pain of guilt and separation they felt ashamed and separated from one another for the first time trust was broken they could not enjoy intimacy anymore we sometimes use the phrase don't we like a fish out of water do you ever use that phrase that is more true than we know. A fish is created to be in the water. If a fish thinks that true freedom is found living on the sofa, I'd love to live on the sofa where those human beings live. And the fish jumps out the tank to sit on the sofa with a coke watching TV. It won't be long before the fish is gasping and dying. The truth is that we've been created to live in the sphere of harmony with God and with one another and we thought it would be a good thing to try something else 
And now nothing works, really, as it should. We crave and yearn for something more, for something better. The reason the world is a mess is because we don't want to submit willingly to the conductor's loving rule. This dislocation even affects creation itself. Paul speaks about this in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. You don't need to turn to it, but I've, I've written some verses down here. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And he says this, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time Paul says there that even creation is groaning, yearning, waiting, longing to be free from decay. Because of sin, even creation is dislocated. All of us, believers and unbelievers, are caught up in a world that is fundamentally dysfunctional. When we look out into the world and see it as it is it should be like a great big megaphone shouting the fact that we are not listening to the conductor it's very striking though isn't it that um, in that passage in Romans Paul speaks of the pains of childbirth I think sometimes we look at the world and we see that it, it was um, dad's army Captain Mannering were all doomed we, we think the world is doomed but Paul says that these troubles and problems and difficulties are not hopeless they are, he, he, he says they're more like birth pangs Paul says these are not the prelude to ultimate doom actually one day the pain will give way to joy the bondage to decay will be replaced by freedom the darkness will be overcome by light and the dislocation will be put back together. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. The world was not meant to be like this. It won't always be like this. God is working out his great plan in history to reunite things under the lordship of Jesus. Picture Jesus as the conductor who is putting the whole orchestra back together again. One older commentator writes that this is to gather again things which had been originally one but had since been separated. Another more recent writer says that this verse is the gathering of diverse parts into one coherent whole. You could view the whole message of the Bible as, as this. We'll come back to that. God is calling us to pick up our instruments and come and sit back down in our place and follow the lead of the most wonderful conductor that there is. Christianity is therefore concerned with us willingly 
bringing every area of our lives under his leadership or lordship or kingship. Christ's call is for us to stop living for ourselves and return to living with Christ at the centre of our lives. So the first thing that this verse implies is that things need fixing. The second thing that it implies, which you've already seen, is that Jesus is the ultimate good king. God is at work in history to unite all things under his authority. When I was researching this verse, I was struck, very struck, by some very thoughtful comments by an American pastor and writer, Tim Keller, pastor of a church in New York. Some of you will have read some of his books. Uh, Tim Keller points out that many cultures have legends, don't they, about a glorious golden age in the past when there was a great monarch who reigned with power and compassion a time of justice and prosperity and all the citizens were free and healthy and happy I think sometimes this is reflected in the fairy stories that we tell our kids where this idea of a golden age, a golden kingdom somewhere out there with a great noble king In our modern world, there's been a strong movement away from monarchies. And and even in countries where there is a monarch, like there is in our country, their their power is very generally limited. Uh, I think the Queen has some power, but really it's it's Parliament, isn't it? Uh, Keller says that in France, during the uh, French Revolution, in the late 1700s, the the general population of France rose up and fought against the monarchy. And many people, kings, queens, many people who were part of that aristocracy had their heads lopped off on the guillotine, didn't they? Many social commentators trace that back to the Enlightenment period. This was a time when people were, were kind of waking up after the Dark Ages and realising that human beings had potential, creativity. The growing realisation that all human beings have rights and have dignity seemed to mean in France that there was a massive backlash against the king. The French Revolution was all about the fact that no one should be subservient to another. Well, Keller points out, interestingly, that Christians too have often opposed monarchies but for very different reasons. The Christian has a view of human nature that says that we're prone to sin and selfishness and corruption and a Christian would say that no one really should have absolute power because absolute power tends to corrupt us. So the French abandon the idea of kings because no one should be reduced to being a slave. Christians have often opposed monarchies because no one is really fit to be a king. So they both end up with a kind of democracy, but for very different reasons. My question is, what if there was a truly good king? A powerful king who reigned with justice, fairness, compassion and truth. What if there was a king who could be trusted 
not to be corrupted by absolute power, but to discharge all of his duties with great skill and care. A king who would protect his subjects from harm, as only a mighty warrior could, but who would also be a shepherd to the vulnerable. A king who would dispense justice with unswerving accuracy. Paul is telling us here that there is such a king. The difference is that this is no ordinary human king. This is God himself in human form. Jesus Christ, the God-man. When we get near Christmas, one of the things that we often see on Christmas cards is a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet foretells the coming of the Messiah into the world in terms of a king being born. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal or the enthusiasm of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God is at work in human history to bring all things under the authority of his son, King Jesus. The thing that is incredible about the kingliness of Jesus is that although he has ultimate power, here is a king who laid down his life for his rebellious subjects. The way that Christ establishes his kingdom is not by a display of dramatic power, but by being dislocated himself. He conquers by dying. He comes to take our place, to stand in our shoes, to bear the consequences of our rebellion. And he establishes kingdom by dying for rebel citizens. Christ is the king who comes to restore broken subjects and make them whole again. His kingdom has begun now and it spreads throughout the world wherever this gospel is proclaimed. God calls people everywhere to come and receive forgiveness and life from this king and to submit to him and therefore to grow what Paul sees here as the goal of history actually has begun here and now let's turn lastly to think about what difference this should make to us then here we go I want to suggest first of all that what Paul says here in verse 10 about the end of history points to a completely new identity for you and me. 
My point being that if you are in Christ, then this story is actually your story. The trajectory of Christ's story is your story too. Paul actually says this in the next two verses. He talks about the end times being unified under Christ and then he says in verse 11, in him, that is Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. If this story is your story, your story may be painful and difficult, but if you are in Christ, it will not end in tears. It will end in glory. This is a kingdom that has begun now, but will be consummated then. And we live, don't we, in a kind of in-between time where we can look back to the cross with gratitude and look forward to this future with great hope. Our lives are often a messy mixture, aren't they, of gratitude and hope and joy and sorrow. Paul's point here is that this story is going somewhere. And if you are in Christ, your life is not ultimately heading downwards, but in Christ it is heading gloriously upwards. So the question is not just how do you think about history, the question is how do you think about you? Do you see that in Christ you can be a new person with a clean past, with an empowered present, and with a glorious destiny because of Jesus this story can be a story you participate in. Praise God for that. Uh, secondly, and, and lastly, it, it, this points to us having new relationships. Let me just spend a little bit of time as we close doing this uh, together. If this is where Christ is taking history, what does it mean for our relationships? Christ is dealing with the sin that dislocates and divides and alienates and separates. One writer suggests that sin makes people pathologically closed. I love, I love that phrase. Sin makes people pathologically closed. What God is doing is restoring relationships first with himself and then between people. Our culture is often all about me but Christians ought to be all about we. Christianity is not individualistic. It is about us. It is corporate. And this is where Paul gets very excited, doesn't he, about the church. We think of churches as buildings. Paul thinks of churches as people. I think some of you have experienced this here. There's a sense of community and love and purpose there is forgiveness and grace to those who stumble and fall there's opportunity to serve one another for Christ's sake the church is a place in which things change let me touch on three things uh, as we close first of all churches should be place, places where racism dies 
We'll get to this in chapter 2. Paul goes there uh, when he talks about the most terrible, intractable, unsolvable and profound racial and religious tension between Jews and Gentiles. Yet, he says, Christ smashes it. Paul portrays Jesus as the great barrier destroyer. We build walls. Christ came to smash them down. He is the bringer of peace. He is the harmonizer. In him, people who formerly hated one another begin to love one another deeply. In chapter 3, Paul says this is actually what the mystery is. Just look with me at chapter 3. And uh, verse 6, Paul says this mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ. The Jews called Gentiles Gentile dogs. The Gentiles thought the Jews were arrogant. Paul says the mystery of the gospel is that these two groups who wanted to cut each other's throats often were sharers together in the promise of Christ. In other words, the sign that God's plan is working in this world is when racism and segregation is overcome and unity happens. This is the great evidence that God is at work in his world. And it's not just evidence to the world Paul says something even more astonishing in verse... Uh, look, look with me down at verse 9. Paul speaks about his own ministry and he says, I, I've been sent to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to heavenly beings that we don't even know. What, what, what Paul's saying is that the church is not just an evidence to the world of God's work, the church is an evidence to heavenly beings of God's work. Even the angels look at the church and go, wow, look at what God just did. Those people were smashing each other before. And now they love one another. Isn't it incredible what God has done in this broken world? The church of Jesus is never irrelevant or pointless. Even our community here in this place is one small part of God's gigantic and cosmic plan to bring all things together under the Lordship of Christ. The church is the place where that should be happening now. And it's a demonstration of God's wisdom and power. Secondly, not only racism dies, but moral standards improve. For Paul, it's not just relational, it's moral too. Isn't it true that politicians scratch their heads about the breakdown we see in society? Secularists continue to claim that we can be good without God. That is like saying that the orchestra can play harmony by ignoring the conductor. Here Paul gives a simple and solid grounding for communities to live in harmony. Look with me at chapter 4. Paul says, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy 
of the calling you have received. If this is where you're going, Paul says, I urge you to keep in mind your destiny and let your destiny shape how you live today. And look at what he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you notice how many times Paul said the word one? Paul's ethics, Paul's sense of behaviour in the church is all geared towards unity. One God, one Father, one Christ, one baptism, one people. Was it Charles de Gaulle who said, how, how do you govern a country that has 248 different kinds of cheese? <laughs> how do you govern a country? But it, the, the unity is only possible when people submit to the Lordship of Christ. That's exactly what Paul says. Lastly, um, we can serve one another in love. Just look with me, last of all, at verse uh, 11 of chapter 4. Paul says it was Christ who gave gifts to his church. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up. Why? Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 10 of chapter 1 shapes Paul's whole theology. Christ gives gifts to his church so that we will be built up, not torn down. so that we wouldn't be unstable, immature. Do you know, we've often said in our leadership team, the job of a minister of a church is not to do ministry. The job of a ministry, minister of a church is to equip Christian believers to do ministry. There's a big difference. Many churches, the minister stands at the front, people come, and the minister spoon feeds ministry to them. That isn't the job of a minister. According to Paul here, the job of a minister, God gives ministers to the church to liberate and equip Christians in the church to serve one another. That is the great vision that Paul has here. So here's Paul's application. This verse in, in chapter 1 is the pinnacle of his theology. We said it changes everything. And we'll see it unfold as we go through the rest of the letter. If everything is being united under the Lordship of Christ, then in the church, racism dies, morality improves, and people serve one another willingly in love. And God is worshipped for all of his work in this world. For Paul, the gospel is not abstract. It is very down to earth, very practical. 
The church is not a building, but a place where all of this stuff should be happening. If the goal of history is that God is bringing things to unity in Christ, I have two questions for you. If this is the goal of history, then is Jesus your king? We've asked a lot of questions recently. But in the end, all those questions come down to this one. Your growth, your belonging, your forgiveness is all possible because Jesus is the ultimate good king. He invites you to come and follow him. So are you living with Jesus at the centre of your life? Or are you pushing him out to the margins and centering your life on something else? Secondly, if this is the goal of history then, I want to ask this question as well. Is change happening here in this place? Do we truly love people who are different to us? Is our love growing? Is our joy increasing? Are we becoming more like Jesus is? Are we using our gifts to serve one another in love? Is our church family impacting the wider community here? If this is the goal of history, then we need to make sure now that Jesus is our King so that these kind of things can happen here to God's praise and for his glory. Amen.